So thank you very much, Matt, for that introduction. Um, wonderful to be here with Eugenia and with Venki. And Venki, let's just give a bit of a sense of the sort of cultural backdrop. How's um, Ramanujan regarded in India compared with here? Give us a sense of, of how important the figure is seen today. Well, uh, if you walk down the street, um, even in Cambridge, um, most people wouldn't know who Ramanujan uh, it was. Uh, but if you ask almost any school child in India uh, who Ramanujan was, they will know uh, that he was this very famous mathematician. Uh, they won't know what he did. In fact, most people who are not professional mathematicians uh, won't be able to tell you. But they will know about his story, that he was you know, self-taught and then he uh, went off to England and for a pure mathematician is amazing, actually. And, and went off to England to work with some of the best mathematicians of uh, their time. And uh, I suppose one thing they're proud of was that it was the first time uh, someone from India had gone to England and been accepted as an equal of one of the great uh, people in the field. And uh, I think that gave Indians a sense of confidence because until then, you know, they had inculcated in themselves this feeling that maybe they're uh, inferior. Maybe, you know, Europeans are superior, they're superior technology, superior learning, all of this stuff. And that India's ad sort of knowledge and advancement lay somewhere in the distant past. But now here was a guy who, you know, could uh, be an equal. He was even linked with the birth of, of modern India, in a way. In a way, he was, because, as I said, he was the first, first Indian to be treated as an equal by his uh, British peers, uh, who were among the best in the world. Uh, he was the first Indian in a long time and the second Indian ever to be elected fellow of the Royal Society. Uh, there was somebody who was elected in the 1800s but that was when the Royal Society was a bit of a club, you know, so if you were sort of the right sort of not person. Not like that today, of course. No, of it? course not. <laughs> <laughs> we're very rigorous now, you know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, but, but the, uh, you know, if you were the right sort of person and had the right connections, you know, that you'd be nominated and, and people. And uh, there was a period in the 1800s when that happened. And uh, the one of the Indians was, uh, I believe he was an engineer in Bombay or or what's now Mumbai, was, was the first Indian to be elected. But uh, then things had changed and people were elected based on groundbreaking uh, discoveries of work that had become a requirement. And uh, Ramanujan, you, you know, after 50 years was the first Indian. And it opened up the floodgates because after Ramanujan, uh, 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 several Indians from uh, people like uh, Meghnad Saha and and Bose, after whom bosons are named, and C.B. Raman, after Raman spectroscopy. Uh, it, it just, you know, a whole series of Indians then uh, were, you know, elected fellows of the Royal Society, and it, it really put Indian science on the map again. Now, he, his mathematics was intriguing and exceptional, and Eugenia, you have the tough job of trying to give the audience a flavor of what, what he specialized in, what his strengths were, 
and what the importance was of what he was trying to do. Now, remember, they're not Fields medalists or Arbel Prize winners, so uh, um, there might be a couple out there, I don't know. But um, just give us a flavour of, of a sense of what he actually did. Well, Ramanujan's work was in number theory. You might think that that's the whole of maths, because isn't maths just about numbers? But maths is about lots of things other than numbers. So number theory is a specific field that studies mostly the whole numbers. And you might think, well, what is there to say about that? You can't just invent a new whole number. Don't we know all the whole numbers? But mathematicians study the behavior of the numbers and how they interact with each other. Just like when you study animals, you study how they interact, whether they herd together in groups, how they multiply. And the key point about the whole numbers is working out what the basic building blocks are. Just like in chemistry, we know that the molecules, the atoms, or whatever, are the basic building blocks. If you're building numbers by addition, then you only need the number one because you just keep adding it and you get all the numbers. But if you're building numbers by multiplication, one doesn't get you anywhere because you just multiply one by one by one, you just get one. So you need all the prime numbers, and that's the point of the prime numbers. They're usually taught as the numbers that are only divisible by one and themselves, and also one isn't a prime number. But the point is, they're all the ones you need to build the other numbers by multiplication. And the extraordinary thing is, we don't really know where they are. And so part of what Ramanujan was doing was, was understanding where this infinity of prime numbers is and having a sense of how to count them, where they're going to crop up, there's no patterns in them, that they get further and further spaced out as they go along. But moreover, he used an extraordinary technique, which was he built a bridge between the field of analysis and the field of number theory, which sound like they should be completely separate because numbers, whole numbers, are very equally spaced out. Analysis is about things that are continuously changing and or very, very tiny and close together. So you might think, how on earth could that be used to study the field of numbers? But that's why he was, what he was doing was called analytic number theory. And in fact, a lot of the greatest breakthroughs in mathematics aren't just solving problems and proving theorems, but they are when you make a connection between one field and another, then it opens up all sorts of possibilities for bringing information backwards and forwards. And having a sense of those connections is a large part of what his work was. We had a terrific discussion in the ANAC uh, a few weeks ago between Andrew Wiles of Fermat last theorem uh, fame and Hannah Fry. And Hannah was trying to get out of uh, Andrew um, what it felt like, what this, this phrase about maths being beautiful and the beauty of discovery. And he used this uh, image of wandering through a, a lovely country garden and then turning a corner and seeing an amazing new vista and a new view. So it sounds like he was describing the kind of marriage between th what were thought to be disparate fields that you've just been talking about. Yes, and you will actually see some of that in the film. There's a part where they start drawing circles on a blackboard and it looks like some random circles, but it's a very serious piece of mathematics in there to do with some amazing fact that if you go around the circle, you can just just edge off the circle a little bit and discover amazing facts about where the prime numbers are. It's very extraordinary, and it's not something that even other mathematicians can really understand. So don't feel bad if you don't understand it. I don't understand it either, <laughs> but at least have a sense that it is something extraordinary. Now, one of the things that's really intriguing about the way he made his discoveries was he sort of intuited them. Uh, he didn't seem to formally work them out. He just sensed that 
this, this was the answer. And I can't sort of get my head around that because maths is supposed to be you know, putting together chunks of pure logic and inference and so on. How, how does that work and do you do the same thing when you do maths? Much has been made of the fact that Ramanujan used his intuition and felt that a goddess was placing equations on his tongue in his sleep. And this is hailed as something mysterious and extraordinary, that how could a mathematician simply use intuition to guess results that came out of nowhere? But actually, the secret, I'm not sure if this is a secret, well, it's not really a secret anymore, <laughs> is that we all use our intuition at the beginning of the mathematical process. We have to have some way of feeling what is going to be true before we can prove it. Because you can't prove things by just going off and saying, I'm going to prove something now, let's go. Because you don't know where you're going. And so what you have to do is guess what your destination is going to be and have some feeling for something that's going to be true. And it's very difficult to describe where that feeling comes from. It comes from patterns. It comes from being reminded of other things you've seen. But it really is a gut instinct. The logic part only comes in afterwards to justify what you've done. And that's why it's different from just having opinions on the internet. It's actually mathematics that has a process for testing and justifying what your gut instincts were, because it does start with the gut instincts. The thing that's a little bit different about Ramanujan is, first of all, the extraordinarily huge quantity of ideas that he had. It really was extraordinary. It's having ideas is one of the hardest parts of doing mathematics. And in a way, one of the most important things that he did was provide hundreds of years' worth of ideas for other mathematicians to work on so that the ones who were better at just plodding slowly through logical thought processes could take those ideas and, and somehow plod through the thought processes to get to them. But he was so interested in those ideas, in a way he didn't feel like he wanted to be bogged down by having to do the extremely rigorous logical proofs. And honestly, when we're thinking about mathematical theorems, often it's the intuition that convinces us ourselves. The proof is in order to convince other people, but it's the intuition and the feeling that we have that convinces us all along. And the thing that drives us to find the proof is the fact that we feel so deeply that it's going to be true. So thank you. You, you get a letter from someone in India who says that a goddess has revealed a great truth about science to them, and here it is. What would you be inclined to do, and how on earth did he manage to connect with Hardy in Cambridge? Well, it's, it is remarkable. And, you know, Freeman Dyson, the uh, famous physicist, says that as a result, I, I, I believe he may even have, uh, uh, he, well, he was in Cambridge as well. I don't know what the extent was uh, of uh, the relationship. But anyway, he said that as a result of uh, Hardy's experience of receiving this letter out of nowhere, and identifying a genius, uh, he's, he was very reluctant to uh, throw away any letter without really sort of looking at it carefully because he thought, well, what if this is the next Ramanujan? Uh, the reality, I'm afraid, is that I get, you know, sort of several crank letters a week. And uh, so I, I must say Good the one. signal to noise is, is very <laughs> low. <laughs> and, and the chances that one of them is the next Ramanujan is, is, is very small. So I think Ramanujan really was uh, something of a, a real anomaly. Do, do we understand what it was in those letters that really piqued Hardy's? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think that's, that's, uh, that's in Hardy's um, uh, 
Well, it, Hardy has written about it himself, and it's in the book, A Man Who Knew Infinity, and I believe it's in the, in the film, uh, which is that he recognized some of the results. Uh, he, he, he also recognized that some of the results were not true. Okay? He recognized that some of the results were true, but importantly, he recognized that some of the results were true and were not generally known. They were only recently discovered by his group or people he knew, and it wasn't something someone could have copied uh, from somewhere else. And so that's what made him realize that there was something in here. So I've, I've got um, uh, a result that Eugenia wanted to talk about, and I have to say, at first sight, it does look completely bonkers. So this is 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus up to infinity, I presume, equals minus 1 divided by 12. Now, come on. If I got a letter saying, I've just shown this, I would just throw it straight in the waste paper bin. Well, that's the thing. And you will see that come up in the film, if I remember correctly. It quickly comes up in the second letter that Ramanujan wrote to Hardy, where he says, if I had told you this formula in my first letter, you would have immediately thought I was going straight to the lunatic asylum. <laughs> because how could it possibly be true that 1 plus 2 plus 3, etc., all the way up to infinity, how could that equal minus 1 over 12? That makes no sense whatsoever. I, and some of you may have seen a video that went vaguely viral recently where some physicists attempted to prove 1 plus 2 plus 3, etc. equals minus 1 over 12. That proof was fallacious. But what Ramanujan was really doing was he was making some sense out of that situation. And one of the myths about math is that it's all about getting the right answer. But it's not about getting the right answer. It's often about creating worlds in which different answers can be true and in which you can find sense in something that otherwise wouldn't make any sense, like what the square root of minus one is. And what Ramanujan did was he understood something about divergence. Divergence is when things expand off to infinity. And in a way, this is possibly a sense in which he was the man who knew infinity. Because when something expands to infinity, usually you can just say, well, you give up. You throw up your hands and say, well, if I add all that together, it's just going to be infinity. But instead of lumping all of those things in together and just calling them infinity, he had a way of separating them out and making some sense in which they could be different from each other. And in that sense, he had a much keener understanding of things going to infinity than a lot of other people did. So it's not actually equal to minus 1 over 12, but there is a sense in which you can make sense of both sides of that equation to connect them to each other. And math is often about making connections with things rather than just saying, yes, this is right. No, this is wrong. So it should have been the man who knew infinity instead, really. Possibly. And that one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up was because a lot is made of the fact that Ramanujan seemed to have a very close personal relationship with each individual number. And there's a scene in the film where Hardy, it's quite a famous anecdote where he arrives in chapter number 1729 and Ramanujan says something about it. But it's actually not because he had an intimate relationship with numbers. He had been studying a whole theory of which that was an example. And it always sort of bugged me because... In that case, he shouldn't have been called the man who knew infinity if it's that he had a close relationship with finite numbers. Then I thought it should be called the man who knew finity. <laughs> in fact, thank you, because uh, th this sort of goes back to Andrew Wiles again and Fermat, doesn't it? So the, the taxi number anecdote, the people thought that 
he just fished this number out of yeah. thin air and figured it all out. He was interested in this well, already. You know, Fermat's last theorem has intrigued mathematicians for several hundred years, and uh, Ramanujan was not an exception. And, and the reason that uh, he was aware of 1729 is he was looking at, an e at examples where uh, you would have near misses of uh, Fermat's last theorem, uh, which is that you know you couldn't have x cubed plus y cubed equals z cubed, where they're all whole numbers. But you could have x cubed plus y cubed equals z cubed plus one. So it's just off by one or by minus one. He, he studied both cases. And it turns out the 1729 is one of you know, a, a, a the first examples that, that he, he came up with. And he, he, also sh he also showed that, or at least he claimed, I don't know if he proved it, that there are an infinite number of near misses. And then that led to other uh, areas of uh, mathematics. And what you were saying about you know, different areas of mathematics, that's true of a Andrew Wiles himself. In order to prove Fermat's last theorem, he had to bring together a number of areas of mathematics and attack at things as a, you know, a, a sort of sideways, if you like. I mean, as a non-mathematician, you would call that a sideways attack, you know. And um, uh, I, I think that's just amazing to, to me as a non-mathematician. Yeah, and often what's then important about the work that they've done isn't the sheer fact of having solved the problem. It's all the theory that they've developed in the process of solving the problem. And it's the theory that is important. Unfortunately, it's usually the problem that gets famous because it's dramatic and it's well, and you can say, I proved this theorem that everyone's been trying to prove for 300 years. But actually, it was a very incremental buildup of important theory that went into it. But that's less glamorous and dramatic. I do, I do wish that we'd find out a bit more about the process of maths, because actually, of, of particularly pure maths, because it does feel like it's, it, it feels just as creative as discovery in the arts. And, you know, you're talking about your visceral feeling when you, you know that something's right. You know, I still would love to know more about that. Does that mean that in your subconscious, you're processing away, you know, are there layers of understanding that we can't quite get up to our consciousness? Um, and could we... And this is sounding like mystical mumbo jumbo now, but could we unlock them or release them in some way? I mean, do you do you go through routines to get into the into the zone? To that is part of what makes mathematics mysterious, and part of the education process of teaching people to do research and solve math problems is giving techniques for how to go through those processes and get to the place where you can have the ideas. Just like if you want to be an artist, you have to figure out your own ways of getting into the right zone so that you can feel inspired and paint or do whatever it is you want to do. I think the question of intuition is really the same as intuition in anything else. If we feel that there is anything called intuition and some people don't, then what does it consist of? Does it consist of actually very, very fast pattern spotting, being reminded of something else? You know, if you meet someone and you have an intuition that you're going to be really great friends with them, where did that come from? Is it just a wild guess? Are we just succumbing to possibly confirmation bias so we only notice it when it really does happen? But with maths, we, we have to delve into that intuition and try and take it really seriously. And even when we do start trying to justify it with a proof, how do we find the proof? We have to use our intuition to find the proof. 
as well. And how do we find each logical step of the piece? We also have to unpack our intuitions and have a very deep understanding of why. Why do we think this is true? Why does it feel like it's true? Why did that feel like it's true? Sometimes we argue against ourselves and say, well, what if it weren't true? And then see if we can attack it maybe sideways like that or imagine that we're having an argument with a really obnoxious, objectionable person who's going to defeat us, try and defeat us at every turn. But it is, it is a slightly mysterious process, and I think that we're doing Ramanujan a disservice in a way if we imagine that he's the only person, that he's somehow weird, really weird, because he was the only one who thinks that, that ideas came from him from somewhere else. It's true that no one, I don't know of anyone else, who's quite so specific about the exact goddess who gave them the idea and the exact manner in which she did it. But in a way, it's just the perhaps the cultural background that he came from. That was his way of expressing flashes of inspiration that you or I might call flashes of inspiration. I should actually move to your Nobel Prize, Becky, because it shows maths being used in a much more, dare I say, routine way. You know, you were trying to understand the structure of this amazing molecular machine in all our bodies called the ribosome that turns DNA instructions into proteins, and you were using this, using X-rays. You can't focus X-rays, so you can only focus them in effect by hardcore mathematics. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's all based on Fourier transforms and Fourier series. Uh, I should say, you know, I should confess, I have what's called math envy. I wanted to be, a, I wanted to study mathematics, and uh, everyone around me said, oh, no, no, there are no jobs in mathematics. So, so, so I decided to do physics, and then I ended up in theoretical physics, but I, I chose a problem I wasn't interested in. So I'm sort of a failed mathematician twice removed. You know, I'm a failure, <laughs> total failure. <laughs> so so, I, was, so I didn't go into mathematics, and then I sort of dropped out of theoretical physics and went into biophysics. But I think, you know, I use, uh, I, I really sort of admire the beauty of mathematics and, and what it does and how it pervades. Mathematics really pervades almost every discipline. And it used to, used to be biologists, you know, certainly in the 19th century were not very quantitative. But that's all changed. And today biology is extremely quantitative and especially with personalities and genomes. And for the first time, we're seeing large numbers of mathematicians uh, again entering biology. It happened once in the 50s with the growth of biophysics, you know, where physicists and mathematicians entered the field. And now it's happening again with the explosion of genomics, uh, explosion of neuroscience. Uh, so there, you know, and cognitive science. And you seem to be using sort of off-the-shelf maths. You're, you're no, I think, I, think there, there's, I think there's scope for probably new math, uh, you know, and, 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 and how these have been. I wouldn't be surprised if they're really interesting mathematics is, is, is developed for understanding some of these phenomena, like the brain and genomes and so on. I suppose there's another dimension to tonight's story, without going into all the details, the relationship between Ramanujan and the Royal Society. And it's something that really the whole of the science establishment is preoccupied about today, is trying to make it more diverse, more inclusive, do you think there are things we can learn from his story? Well, I think that this one, one thing that you have to appreciate is here is, you know, G.H. Hardy, uh, complete Oxbridge product, okay? He's a Cambridge 
uh, for his undergrad. Uh, and then he went to the other place for a while and then came back to Cambridge. So, you know, he had uh, seen the on, world. Hang on, Cambridge is the other place. I'm an Oxford <laughs> man here. He got it around the wrong way, Venti. <laughs> you know, this, uh, this reminds me of Yes Minister, where, where, where the minister is complaining about, uh, you know, American, uh, uh, sorry, British universities not being funded well enough. And so Humphrey says, but minister, we give plenty of money to both our universities. <laughs> you know, so, so anyway, so that was G.H. Hardy's life. And here comes this, you know, uh, letter from some complete unknown. And, uh, you know, if he had been the, had the classic prejudices of his time, he would have said, who is this guy from India? You know, what do they know about anything? You know, why? And he could have just tossed it into the bin without even looking at it, okay? He looked at it. He was intrigued. He wanted to check Ramanujan out, so he sent somebody out to check him out. That was stage one, and then he brought him to Cambridge. Now, to a lot of fellows at Trinity, you know, this is the first time that, that somebody, a brown guy, is showing up in the dining halls of Trinity, right? I mean, maybe there were students, you know, Maharaja's children and Nehru and people like that, but not at high table, okay? And yet, you know, you have to, s you have to give tr Trinity credit. Uh, first of all, the, the, the head of the professor of mathematics, Neville, when Ramanujan didn't have a room, uh, had Ramanujan stay with him for quite some time, for several weeks, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And his wife actually bought a Victorian vegetarian cookbook. God only knows what was in it. <laughs> but, you know, in order to cook meals for Ramanujan, because she knew he was a... Now, that sort of hospitality and welcoming and inclusiveness, that's amazing. You know, it'd be amazing today, it especially amazing in the early 1900s. So a lot of things, uh, there are a lot of lessons there. You know, you, you see somebody different, you know, vegetarian from a different culture, you know, definitely not into roast beef. And, and you know, instead of saying, well, you know, that's their problem or they're weird, you know, you go out and make an effort to sort of, uh, you know, make them feel welcome. I think that's the sort of thing we ought to do, is when we see talent, we should try and welcome it, you know, wherever it comes from. So we're almost out of time, and I, I know we want to, you're itching to see the movie, but let me just um, ask you both to wrap up on, the, on a key issue, which is, you know, the world runs on mathematics. We need more uh, mathematicians. And thank you, what, what do you think about the power of this story to, to get the, the, the next generation excited about math? Well, I think it's, uh, it's, it's terrific. And I think, you know, in India, Ramanujan, I think, has been single-handedly responsible uh, for lots and lots of bright students going into mathematics. You know, if it's one area where India's, you know, because it doesn't need, it's not very expensive, India's quite strong, especially in pure mathematics. And I think that's uh, a lesson we could learn here. And I have to say, uh, wearing my other hat now, the Royal Society president, you know, we have been pushing for, uh, you know, more investment in mathematics education and mathematics teachers. And uh, as you can see from the recent government uh, announcements, you know, that has actually been well received. And there is a plan now to uh, encourage more people to go into mathematics, to train more mathematics teachers, which is a real problem.
in terms of what kind of mathematician you're trying to inspire, um, Jeannie, you're slightly worried about how the bar is set very high by uh, his story. Do you, you know, what's the difference between um, generating good mathematicians that can make an impact and um, exceptional, amazing mathematicians? That is something that I think is important for us to remember about this story. It is very unique and it's very anomalous. And it is not necessary to be that kind of weirdo. You said it. <laughs> it's not necessary to be that kind of weirdo to be a good mathematician or even a brilliant mathematician. Some brilliant mathematicians are a bit strange, one might say. But some of them are not. And <laughs> I like to think I'm not strange like that. I'm strange in all sorts of ways. But it's, it's, it can put people off because there's this movie and then there's um, A Beautiful Mind and there are other films about mathematicians focusing on what strange... Yes, what strange people they are. And that's in danger of putting people off, thinking, oh, math isn't for me because I don't want to, I'm not that strange and I don't want to become that strange. But actually, you don't have to be like that to be a good or even brilliant mathematician. I should add as well that we've got our beautiful uh, Zaha Hadid designed mathematics gallery where we try very hard to show just the ubiquitous. Impact of maths and how it's really embedded through modern society. And we've got big um, educational and formal education programs as well in the museum. But I think on that point, um, I must uh, wind up and let you watch the movie. I should thank the Royal Society, our sponsors. I should thank Eugenia and Benki as well. And I hope you all enjoy The Man Who Knew Infinity. So good night and thank you very much.